A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Work Stories is a place for women of color to share their experiences in the workplace. We're no longer whispering these stories to our best friends and partners and then shoving them to the backs of our minds and just dealing. We're talking about bias, equal pay, bad bosses, racist hiring practices, and all the crazy things your coworkers have done or said to you. This is a safe place to tell those stories. The floor is open, y'all. We are telling it all. Welcome back to Work Stories, season four. It feels so crazy to say that. Thank you all so much, especially our loyal listeners. And if you're here listening for the first time, then welcome. And I hope you're able to fit Work Stories into your routine this year. There is a lot of intention around packing a powerful, informative punch into 30 minute episodes because I know you all are really, really busy. But I don't want you to forget about goal setting and speaking up at work. I don't want you to forget about activism and allyship, nor do I want you to normalize and accept your toxic workplaces. I also really don't want you to forget about taking care of yourself. So that's why this podcast is still here and still exists. We're starting off big this year, y'all, with the president of the National Partnerships for Women and Families. They are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act. And if you don't already know about the impact of this law, you definitely have to stick around. Let's talk to Jocelyn Fry. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background. I'm Jocelyn Fry. I'm the president of the National Partnership for Women and Families. And I always start by saying, I'm a native Washingtonian. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I have been at the partnership for about a year. I just celebrated my one-year anniversary as the president, but I have a long history with the National Partnership. I worked here as a staff attorney not long out of law school. I had been at a law firm for a few years, but came here when I was still a junior lawyer, and I worked here for almost 16 years and left when I was the general counsel, and I went into the Obama administration administration, working for the First Lady. And now I'm back here, but I've spent a long time working on women's rights and women's issues. And it's exciting to be here with you today. Yes. Well, we thank you for all of your work, listed because we need the help, right? So let's talk about how do you get to this point in your career? Can you kind of take us back? I know you talked about working there, but you know, what other things would you like to share about your journey to this presidency? You know, I always tell people I was a little bit of a crazy kid. I, you know, I decided very young when I was in fourth grade, I was going to be a lawyer. I can tell you, I'm not sure I knew what that really meant, but I stuck with it. Um, And it turned out that that was the right thing for me. Um, You know, all I think I really knew is I wanted to do good. You know, I cared a lot about people's rights and social justice. Both of my parents were public servants. They worked for the federal government for over 30 years. And so So I think instilled in me at a very young age, in many ways unintentionally, I don't think they were trying to do this, was a sense that, you know, one of the important things we could do was to serve others. And, you know, for me, when I left law school, I knew I wanted to do public interest work. I didn't know what it was. I went to a law firm. I did a lot of, you know, 
pro bono work there, but I had the opportunity to come to what was at that time the Women's Legal Defense Fund and work on women's rights and women's employment. And during my time at the Women's Legal Defense Fund, we changed our name to the National Partnerships. And then when I went into the Obama administration, you know, it was an amazing opportunity Mm -hmm. to work for the First Lady, but to also think about how we could build out her vision and her policy work. And it gave me a good perspective on what you can and can't get done in government. And then when I left there, I spent a few years at the Center for American Progress, where I got a good perspective on making the research case and building the case for many of our policy ideas. And that mix of just my personal interest in service and doing good and interest in my learnings from government in terms of what you can and can't get done. And then my learnings from other work of just how you make the case for the policies we want, you know, sort of led me here. Mm -hmm. And here I am, you know, trying to talk about all of the things we can do to make lives better for lots of folks, Mm -hmm. but also rooted in core values about, you know, how we want to function, how we want to ensure that people are treated fairly, everybody has opportunity. And, you know, the principles around social justice that I think we like to say we stand for. So that's, that's how I got here. Yeah. Amazing (laughs) journey. Talk to me about what it's like championing like very controversial causes, even though they shouldn't be (laughs) Uh, handling those controversies and really going up against people who are in strong opposition. When you look like you do, when you're a black woman, what is that like? You know, it has its moments and challenges. What I would say is that there are certainly good days and bad days. And there's lots of folks, particularly these days who are opposed to ideas and policies that we care about. But for me, I am very much inspired by the people who came behind me both the people who are well-known names and the people who are just in my own personal life. I have a lot of people in my family, starting with my parents, but also aunts and uncles who, you know, just sort of have lived by an ethic of work hard, but also treat people fairly. And if you do those things, then you ought to be successful and you ought to be happy with the success of other people. And I think I am sustained by that. I look back and think that I am enormously blessed to have opportunities that my parents could never have dreamed of. They both grew up in segregation and, you know, never would have had the opportunities that I've had and seen the things that I've seen. And if they can go through what they did, I can deal with what I deal with, right? And that's sort of the way that I approach it. I think it's also helpful that I have folks that I can lean on. There, you know, a now growing number of women of color, particularly Black women who are leading organizations. And we lean on each other. And I think you always have to be unafraid to sort of speak truth to power, even if that is controversial, even if it's frightening in the moment. More often than not, there are people who are with you. And if you stand up, maybe they'll stand up with you. And I use that philosophy in much of the work that I do. And, you know, you just go forward. It's rare that I speak up about something where somebody else will say to me, whether they say it right then or they say it later, you know, I've had the same thing happen to me. 
Mm. Um, and that has sort of empowered me to just say what I think. My philosophy is that don't ask me a question if you don't want to know the answer. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I may tell you something that you don't want to hear, but you know, right. it's, it's probably good for you in the long run. So yeah. that's how I approach it. Yeah. I feel like you guys have to have some special club of like black female lawyers, you know, <laughs> black women in politics, like a support group almost. Watching just, you know, the news, right? I'm just watching TV. I'm like, y'all have to have some therapy or somebody on hand because this stuff is wild and and a lot of it we can view you know as the common person you're right you're right I think you have to take it all with a grain of salt and you have to you know I think be able to see that sometimes this isn't normal right like you know you have to be able to sort of call out the crazy even if you don't actually say it to somebody's face at least you know okay this doesn't make sense this 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 is crazy. And, you know, I know I'm not crazy. And as long as you have your wits about you, you sort of just have to navigate it. But what I would say is that the value of being in a position like the one that I have, and I think when I see colleagues who are moving into positions, is that we are in a position to hopefully drive some change. You know, when people are disrespectful to you, it is useful to say, look, we can disagree, but you don't have to be disrespectful to me. And in fact, I actually I'm not going to tolerate you being disrespectful. Yeah. Right. Like we can have a conversation and ought to be able to do so, but in a way that you give me the respect that I'm due and vice versa. Mm -hmm. It's important for me to say those things so that hopefully other people won't have to experience that and sometimes be in a position where they don't feel comfortable saying things. Mm And I think sometimes people, it goes in one ear and out the other, but sometimes when you call people on things and say this reflects a certain either gender bias, race bias, or all of the above, sometimes people listen and they change. Mm. Part of my role is not only to figure out how to navigate status quo that has entrenched bias, it is also to think about how do we change the status quo? How do we disrupt it so that it has less bias, right? Like Mm. we need to think about how you change systems, how you operate in structures that actually are more fair. It's not simply me figuring out how to, you know, call it out and sort of, and being critical of somebody. It's also being thoughtful about how do we make this process a better process? So Mm -hmm. it's fairer, people can function in a, a way that is equitable and that we don't have to have the people who are coming behind me to encounter the same sort of challenges that I can encounter, mm. just as I have it better than people who preceded me, right? Like mm. that's part of my role and part of my obligation. Yeah. First of all, there was so much great advice in that. I hope everyone listening like took that in. But I think that toughness of just, I've got to just keep pushing on. And that view of like, I know people had it rougher than me. is something I know a lot of people that I talk to on this podcast, that's the only thing sometimes that is getting them forward is like, now it's my turn to stand up and speak up. So that's easier for the person after me. But we know even with that, it's still difficult. I'm sure there's still difficult days. But let's talk about a victory. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Family and Medical Leave Act. This month, you're going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary. For those who don't know about the act, can you just tell them why it's so important to how we live today? Yeah, absolutely. The Family and Medical Leave Act was really a groundbreaking law that was the first bill that was signed by President Clinton in 1993. And it's important because it established the principle that folks ought to be able to take time off to care for themselves or their family, their close family 
if they have a medical emergency or some other caregiving need. And in particular, the law says that you can take up to 12 weeks off. It's unpaid leave, but you can still take that leave and you can't lose your job because of it. So people who are facing these impossible choices of either caring for a sick parent, for example, or keeping their job, this law, you know, hits that head on and says that's not a fair choice. So that law is sort of the foundation for a lot of the work now that has gone on to ensure that people who have caregiving needs are not penalized and so forth. But the thing I often say to people, particularly women and women of color even more specifically, is that the law was particularly important because for decades, women were penalized in the workplace because they were caregivers. Mm -hmm. So they didn't get jobs because people said, well, they're going to have kids. They're going to take off more time. Or people thought that they didn't have a strong work ethic because they might have to take off time to go pick up kids and so forth. So this squarely hit head on the bias against mostly women because they were caregivers. And it says that makes no sense. And you can't make a decision about somebody's ability to work and the value of the work that they bring to you solely because they have caregiving responsibilities. And so that's why this law is important. It makes it clear that your caregiving responsibility ought not to be a ding against you Mm -hmm. on your job. And it's not simply a nice thing to address. It's a core labor standard. It ought to be the way workplaces work. And it's a discrimination problem. When people say to you, you don't get this job because you're a mom or you're going to have to care for your mom or your dad, or we think you're going to get sick, whatever the thing is, that is just old-fashioned discrimination. And it has no place in the workplace. And this law tackles that problem head on. Yeah. It's so interesting, the idea of getting kind of punished for our humanity as women, of wanting to care for others and take care of others in all aspects, right? Not even just our family, but in every facet of all of the work that we do, it seems to be touted as a disorder, you know, that we that we are like oh, that. Right. <laughs> it's the longstanding legacy of devaluing care. Right. And we've devalued care work because women do care work. And we devalue it even more because women of color disproportionately do that work. And that work has roots in slavery when folks were doing that work for no pay Mm -hmm. or, you know, little pay. And they were just sort of expected to do it. And nobody was giving consideration to whether they themselves had their own families or their own needs. Mm -hmm. The idea that care work is just sort of something women do and that you don't really have to pay for it or you just pay a little for it is deeply rooted in our history. And part of the work that we are doing now and part of the work that the FMLA did is that it flips that on its script and it Mm -hmm. says it is actually valuable for folks to care for their families. They ought not to lose their jobs. And in fact, we think they ought to get paid when they're taking time off for care. Mm -hmm. We ought to pay care workers more and that the investments that we make in care are not a sign of weakness or a nice thing to do. They actually are a strength, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are stronger as a nation when we invest in the caregiving support that people need. And if people were confused about that at all, it shouldn't be after the pandemic. What the pandemic did is show us how little we had done, all of the policy failures. And those failures were deeply connected to our devaluation of investing in care, right? Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. People think about care as sort of not much, but it actually is vital to our survival. 
Right. right. And that's important. And that's what was reflected in the FMLA. And it's also the work that we're trying to do going forward. Yeah. A lot has changed in 30 years. If this law was enacted today, what do you think it would look like? If you could change anything about this law, what do you think would be the changes you'd make uh, representing 2023? Well, you know, that's a great question. And it's part of the progress that people are looking at now. You know, the Family Medical Leave Act was a groundbreaking step forward. But I think today in 2023, what we recognize is that there are lots of folks, particularly the folks who really need access to leave, who can't take unpaid leave, mm-hmm. right? Like the, right. And there, you know, the data tells us that about a quarter of the people, a little bit less than that, could never take the leave, even though they were entitled to it under the FMLA, mm-hmm. because they simply couldn't afford to take time off with right. no pay. So one thing is really having leave that is paid. The other thing that people have focused on is we already know in the workplace that a lot of times the higher paid workers are the ones who are more likely to have access to benefits like paid leave. Mm -hmm. And it's really the lower wage workers who are in jobs that have less stability and where employers are offering them fewer benefits, they have less flexibility and so forth. So one of the fixes um, that people have talked about to support lower wage workers is to ensure that if they get paid leave, that they're actually getting enough pay to survive, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're only getting half your pay, sometimes that just isn't enough. Right. So, you know, some states that have paid leave have looked at what we call progressive wage replacements so that the lower wage employees actually get more of the pay. They may get 90% pay and it's the higher wage workers who maybe only get 60 or 75 percent. So it's a way of ensuring that the people who need it the most and who are the lowest paid workers actually get most, if not all of their salary when they take time off. So that's another change. I think the other thing that I would say is that the Family and Medical Leave Act sort of defines family fairly narrowly. It's your parents, Mm -hmm. it's your kids, it's your spouse. And increasingly, particularly in different cultures and communities, their idea of who their family is is different. You know, people live in multi-generational households, you have LGBTQ plus families. And so increasingly you see paid leave laws that are more expansive to allow folks to take leave for what we would call chosen family, allowing people that flexibility so that the people that who are closest to them, they can care for them and care for each other. Those sorts of modifications I, I think would be helpful. The very last thing I would say is that about 40% of the workforce more or less cannot access the FMLA because it has rules about who is covered, who's eligible. There are hours requirements. You have to work a number of hours for your employer. Mm -hmm. You have to have worked at your employer for a year, that type of thing. It leaves out significant swaths of people, almost half of Latino workers, more than 40% of Black workers. So a lot of workers, in part because they are in disproportionately lower wage jobs that have more turnover Mm -hmm. or part-time work, they they can't access the FMLA. So being available to more workers, you know, workers that are in small employers, the FMLA has a 50 employee threshold. Those sorts of fixes would help more workers get covered, get more income when they're taking leave and would be able to take leave for a broader group of family members. I think those are the improvements that are needed. 
Yeah. Really hit home to me when you talked about the expansion of family. I actually had a situation in my family a few years ago where we were trying to do that with an aunt and it wasn't allowed and it was like this big ordeal. And also it just made me think about like groups of color, like we see family differently. We live in multi-generational households, right? We take responsibility for family in a different way than white culture does. And so it just sometimes feels like, oh, just parents and children. That's it. You know? So I, I love that you said that. I was like, am I the only one thinking this? Um, <laughs> no, Joy. <laughs> it is true. Well, it's, it's, it's also, you know, when people talk about centering women of color or centering Black women in a policy conversation, it is to get at precisely these issues, yep. right? Like As long as your perception of who you're serving is in a white sort of privileged frame, mm-hmm. often a white male privileged frame, you're going to miss all these pieces yeah. and you're going to do clean up on the back end, right? So this is about sort of how the law needs to evolve to ensure that it's actually available to all workers who need it. Mm-hmm. And I think these conversations are helping with like other policies, small policies within organizations. I know the one I work for, we had a conversation about this about a year ago, and it decided to extend your funeral leave uh-huh. to other family members because at the time it was only for like parents, grandparents and siblings. And so just like probably nine months ago, we just expanded it to other people, which seems crazy, right? It's like this should have been done forever ago. Um, but we did put clauses in for chosen family. Like mm-hmm. not everybody has blood family that is their community. So right. very important. So for those of us listening, like what can we do to get involved to make sure, number one, this stays the law, and number two, that there are additions down the line, possibly? What can the common person do? The first thing I would say is people should tell their stories. I find, particularly with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, but I think this is true in communities around the country, that policymakers have to be responsive to the people who put them there. And so when the people who put them there say, this was my story, this happened to me, then they feel more obligated to be responsive to it. You know, even if they don't do the right thing, at least they know somebody in my district or my state is actually paying attention to what I do. So I think it's important for people to tell their stories and that, you know, can be in a letter to the editor. It could be at a town hall. It could be making a phone call to their member of Congress. It could be going to their local city council meeting. You know, there are lots of cities and states that have laws around paid leave. So there are lots of opportunities for people to be present and make sure that people hear, this is why this matters to me. This is my personal story. This is why I think it's important to have policies in place to help families who have care needs. So I always tell people, tell their stories, speak up, tell their member of Congress, their senator, but also policymakers in their communities. I also think it's important to lift up people who are doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. If your employer adopted a policy that you like, it's good for them to get that feedback mm-hmm. because it supports them doing even more. You know, we make the case not simply out of thin air, but because there's ample research that you get better workers, they're more productive, better retention. It saves money for employers to actually have these policies, but it also is good to reinforce it with employers themselves. So I think all those things are really important. And the last thing I would say is it is important to connect the dots for people. I find that on many of the issues that I work on, people try to put them in silos. Mm -hmm. You're a Black woman, so you only care about this. Mm -hmm. You don't care about that or what have you. And in truth, the issues around access 
just to paid family and medical leave. Yes, they are women's issues. Yes, they are black women's issues, but they're economic issues. They're workplace issues. They're family issues. They matter for a whole set of reasons. I could spend the entire time talking about not solely why this is a women's issue, but why investing in sort of care policies is good for our economy. It's Mm -hmm. good for us in terms of our global competitiveness. So Mm -hmm. I think it is always important to connect the dots. If people can't take time off and they have to lose their job, that has economic consequences for their families. It means they might have to access benefits that they wouldn't otherwise have to access. They may not be able to buy sort of consumer products that we are expecting them to, to do because they don't have disposable income. All of these things are connected together and it's important for people to tell those stories too. And when they speak up, when lawmakers understand that this is relevant and that people are paying attention, then they're more likely to do something about it. Yeah. Great advice. You know, when we're looking at women's issues today in 2023, particularly from your Obama administration lens, where a lot of things were different, how are you feeling about the direction that we're going in. I think I'm an eternal optimist. So I try to be optimistic, even at times where it doesn't look like you should have any <laughs> I have been um, very uplifted by the direction of the current administration and where they want to go, even if all of the things that they are pushing for don't get over the finish line. It is important to have presidential and vice presidential leadership mm-hmm. on issues that are of critical importance to women and families. You know, this president put a comprehensive paid family and medical leave proposal forward, and it came oh so close to getting over the finish line. But that was unprecedented, and it was important. The president and the vice president in particular have been leaders on reproductive rights and and sort of being out there and talking about we can't go backwards and putting the administration forward and making sure that they do what they can to make Mm. sure that folks can access abortion care when they need it. You know, they have done work on maternal health. There were important improvements in access to care for, you know, pregnant women through Medicaid that got into the last package. There's money in the infrastructure bill. You know, you can go on and on. So those are important improvements. You know, they want to do things around childcare and leadership matters, Mm -hmm. right? And even if you don't see all the success that you want in terms of getting things over the finish line, the fact that you have top officials in our country saying that these issues are important signals that these are serious issues that people ought to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And it supports employers doing the right thing. It encourages innovation at the state level and so forth. So I feel good about this administration. I say to anybody, people talk about Congress. Congress is uneven, (laughs) is the the nice tactful word for it. Um, But, you know, you can make progress in all places, Mm -hmm. right? Like even during the Trump administration with both the House and the Senate, tightly controlled, there was progress on paid leave Mm -hmm. for federal workers. So nothing is impossible. And my task is to make the case to anybody who will listen. You know, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, that gives pregnant women greater ability to be accommodated at work mm-hmm. if they need a bathroom break or be able to get lighter duty or act, you know take water breaks um, um, passed and, and got through at the end of the year mm-hmm. in bipartisan fashion, right? So 
That was important, right, important progress. There was progress for breastfeeding moms, right? Like these were bipartisan efforts. And so you never know. You know, Mm. my view is that the issues that I work on are not Republican issues, they're not Democratic issues. We know that from the polling. And I have to operate as if I can get support across all different constituencies and make that case. And if we don't get it across the finish line, we just keep fighting for it. So, you know, I think you have to sort of just take that approach in order to do the work Mm -hmm. and take the good days with the less good days and keep fighting, right? The the one thing I know is that our opponents are counting us on us giving up. Right. Um, And so we have no interest in doing that. And every loss is just an opportunity to have an even bigger win. So Great. Jocelyn Fry, the eternal optimist. Beautiful. Okay. So before we go, I want to play a little game with you. I'm doing with all my guests this season. I am just going to say a bunch of words or terms. And I just want to know the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh my God. Okay. I know. I know. It's crazy. I'm wild. Okay. Paternity leave. Must do. Missouri's house dress code for women. Oh, crazy. (laughs) Insanity. Uh, Air fryers. Very tasty. I need one. Very good. The abortion pill. Um, should be available for everyone. Caregivers. You know, unsung heroes. Uh, paid leave on election day. Uh, it's going to happen. Okay. Listen. Uh, Southwest Airlines. Um, you know, I, I have great sympathy. Need to work on some progress. Uh, you know. Okay. Uh, Black History Month. An important opportunity, but it's, you know, Black History Month is every month. Um, the Canadian, uh, pregnancy leave of six months. Important progress and leadership that we should look to. Great. And feminism. Um, essential to the progress of our nation. Love it. See, that wasn't so bad. Okay. (laughs) Yay. Thank you so much for joining us and giving all this insight. And yeah, I hope everyone gets involved and learns more about the Family and Medical Leave Act. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yep. You just heard from a real life superhero. Please take Jocelyn's advice and do your part in advocating for issues around women in the workplace. Advocating for women is advocating for everyone. Take care of yourselves this week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 